It's about power dynamics. Sexual abuse is always the abuse of power. And that is why the church has such trouble with it, because we're so steeped in the notion that it makes sense for men to have power and women to submit, that to see this clearly means to unmask something so kind of um, basic and that feels just so natural or normal for a lot of people because they've grown up with it, that um, it's tough. Self-obsessed with a license to kill In the land of the vipers and shills Who think that the piety's real While the hitmen are firing her will I hold my breath and I try to be still Faint heartbeats, only life that I feel A cheap imitation of life that's real Truth is I die to be healed I keep faint praise on the tip of my tongue The blade designed to kill everyone Till the breath gets ripped from my lungs Y'all gonna drink from this river of blood Hey there, how are you doing everybody? I am Seth. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad that you downloaded the episode today. So here's what I want to do. I don't want to do the rate and review, all that goodness. Maybe we'll do it at the end. I haven't made my mind up yet. I really just want to dive right into this show. So I brought Ruth Everhart on to the podcast and her book was sent to me by the publisher to read and she talks about the Me Too movement in the church and the reckoning that's going to happen from it. And we talk a bit about sexual assault and the church's complicity in that. And so I just want to caution people, although we don't really have specific details, there's nothing really extremely graphic. The subject matter content may trigger you a bit. And so if that's not something that you can do safely at this moment, you might want to set this one aside. However, I think it's vitally important for the health of our church, for the health of one another, that we lean into conversations like these, conversations on race and power and oppression, sexual oppression, purity culture. They have to be talked about. Like They need to have light shown on them. They need to be reckoned with. And so I just wanted to give that warning. And so with that said, here we go. For all my trespasses as a man, mankind should have been my business instead of self-interest. Bottom lines and best intentions All this time burning bridges and building temples And never considered the penalty for my sins against you But when you stuck here it's like you never mattered You're just vapor scattered Fighting angels to get a better name And then afterwards we see them all scaling Jacob's ladder but Shame on my hubris And shame on my pride Shame on these lies That I told countless times Just to keep people in line I got this long list of apologies to make those I said I love when all I did was take I brought them close like I wanted them to stay and then I disappeared and left them Ruth Everhart thanks for coming on the show and uh, before you say anything I think it's been since March that I have figured out a way to coordinate this that I've been talking with IVP to get you on the show and most of that's my fault part of that's the economy part of that's my job part of that's a coronavirus all of those are excuses so I intended to talk to you months ago and I didn't and I'm sorry, but I'm glad that you're here tonight. I'm glad to be here tonight, <laughs> Seth. When your publisher reached out to me and said, hey, this is a conversation. Are you willing to have it? Uh, specifically, um, a lot of the conversations I try to have on the show, I try to skirt around topics that I'm ignorant of or really don't have much of a, uh, what's the word? I don't have a lot of experience in. And this honestly is, is one for me, um, sadly enough. Uh, which we'll get into in a minute. But before we get to your book and the topic at hand, 
what would you want people to know about you? If you were to take a few minutes and say, these are the most important things that actually make me me. Like as you look back through time, you're like, yeah, these are the pivotal moments that made me whatever you are right now. Right. Well, I was raised in the church. I was raised specifically in the Christian Reformed Church. And if you know that, it's a conservative um, denomination. And I attended Christian schools all my life. So I am a product of the church, Mm. you know, and um, my parents even worked in the Christian school system. And I attended the college of that denomination, which is Calvin College in Michigan. And uh, so I was um, really a good girl. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, I was raised to be a good girl and I knew how to be a good girl. And then when I was a senior at Calvin, this traumatic event happened that completely reshaped my life. And it reshaped my understanding of who I was because there was this traumatic sexual assault by us, by strangers who broke into our house. And what that did for me was completely destroy my faith and my life and my understanding of how the world worked. And so I had to really rebuild that um, uh, over the course, I would say, of the next uh, decade. And eventually I heard the call to ministry and I um, went to seminary. That was something that would have been off the table for me in my prior life because girls, women were not allowed to be in ministry. Mm. And uh, I ended up becoming a Presbyterian minister, got ordained in the PCUSA. And I've been in ministry um, ever since, which is um, now I can I can talk about that in terms of decades, <laughs> a long time. <laughs> I don't know anything about the Christian Reformed Church, but I know there's like 97,000 denominations of Protestant Christianity. So can you just high level zoom out? Uh, right. What, it's what is that? Calvin, it's, it's, um, it's a... It's Protestant and mm-hmm. it's Calvinist tradition, and it comes out of the uh, out of Holland. It's so um, it's kind of uh, the theology is really similar to Presbyterianism or basic Calvinism, but the um, ethnic is kind of this ethnic tie that is what makes it very culturally conservative. Ethnic? What do you mean? You mean ethnic as in? Like, as, as in, as in, we're all Dutch. Oh. <laughs> as in, as in, how is it possible to be, um, to have four, you know, four sets of, gra- four grandparents, mm-hmm. two generations on the road, and you're still, your ethnicity is still 100% Dutch. Huh. Because this is a product of having the Christian schools. And so that's, this becomes where you meet your partner and get married. And so, it's um it's no accident that if you're in that world all the names are dutch names like everhart is my married name my 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 maiden name is heisinga which is actually a fairly common dutch name but um so the, the theology is really similar to presbyterianism i mean just this basic calvinism mm-hmm. um, which it which to me what the touchstone of calvinism is um that God is sovereign over all. God created the world and rules the world. Uh, you know, that's the main touchstone. And um, But I think what's intriguing about that particular denomination is the way that it has, um, it is wanted to, you could use the word, the negative words would be insular, you know, mm-hmm. very, very mm-hmm. tightly woven. Is it still that way? 
Well, it has changed. I mean, they do have women in ministry now sometimes. Mm. And, uh, but yeah, I, I definitely needed to burst out of the, the bonds of that kind of uh, constraint. I get that. Yeah. I grew up as an independent regular Baptist, um, which is conservative wrapped in a piggy blanket of more conservative and then baked at 400 degrees and Mm -hmm. then nestled in Texas inside of all of that culture. The book that you wrote, um, first off, my daughter, her favorite color is pink. And so for people in the video, like the the book itself is pink. I can't tell you how often my seven-year-old who has a desk, not unlike my own, it's covered in marker and ink and tape and designs and patterns. And I, there's no reason to even try to stop her anymore. It's like trying to stop the ants from coming into the house when it rains. Like it's just deal with it. It's happening. Um, she won't stop coloring on your book because she says it's pretty. Um, which oh, that's really nice. I, I guess it's not nice when you want to read it and you're like, Hey, don't, don't draw in the book. You can color out of the book. Don't, don't draw in my book. Cause I need to read these. So the book itself, though, brought up a conversation with her because she reads very well. And she said, Daddy, what is me too? And I said, well, because you're seven. Well, that and that was the end of it. So kind of I want we'll get there in a minute because I really struggle with this topic a lot. Um, just a lot. I think a lot of people do. So can you tell me a bit about why you wrote me too? kind of the genesis of that? Why? Like why this book? Well, I wrote it because uh, when the Me Too movement came along, I saw it as an incredible opportunity for the church to engage in a justice movement that was long overdue, which was saying that women uh, have too often been victimized and have too often been treated as less than. Mm -hmm. And so loving uh, Jesus as I do, loving the church as I do, I was excited to see the church kind of be in the vanguard of... um, pushing that forward and kind of leading the culture. And instead what happened was the church was the opposite. It was dragging up the rear and we saw Hollywood and the arena of sports and uh, other, you know, other more monolithic um, entities that are more attached to the bottom line and therefore a little more responsive to culture. They were taking the leadership in terms of, um, responding to the fact that um, women's voices were being heard, women who'd been victimized. And so I wrote the book and we called it the Me Too Reckoning, facing the church's complicity in sexual abuse uh, and misconduct Mm -hmm. to say that um, the church does have to face the ways in which it has dropped the ball and failed to be responsive to this justice movement, which is how I see it. Yeah. That's not what I said to my daughter. What I ended up saying is we'll talk about it later. And she's, she's since forgotten. Um, I still, if she asked again today, I still don't honestly know how to talk to her about it. Um, so can you, I, I want to go back to something. Why you, is that? Because it's so uncomfortable for you to realize that she's a girl and that someday she might be victimized. No, no. Honestly, I'm terrified of that. Um, not so much for her. I feel like hopefully if I'm doing my job well, and I talked about this a little bit like a year ago, a year and a half ago with Carolyn Custis James a bit. We talked a bit about my daughter and, um, yeah, I'm terrified that I will be a bad version. I'm terrified that I will set the wrong example for what a man should be 
um, inadvertently by reinforcing patriarchy or the way that I talk with her mom. So it's, you know, it's just, um, it's just a constant balance because the world that we live in, I don't, I don't want the world that she lives in to be the same world that I grew up in, if that makes any sense at all. Oh, amen. Um, I mean, is that what keeps us going forward is that we're going to leave it just a little better for our kids? I'm not sure. I just watched a John MacArthur video talking about Black Lives Matter, and I don't think that everybody agrees with what I just said. So, um, And that's just an example that made me angry literally before I came down here to talk to you. Luckily, it was a one-minute video, so um, I could put it away. No, mostly um, because of her age... Um, she doesn't seem to be concerned with sexual things. And so I don't want to force that conversation onto Mm. her, um, not to preserve her innocence, but just because I don't want to complicate things that for right now, she doesn't seem all that interested in, in understanding. Uh, though I do try to bring it up just to see what she'll say, you know, other things. And uh, so far she doesn't seem to care. And so that's why I say, I don't understand how to explain the movement or, the reason behind it, I think because of a lack of context on her end. I hope I'm saying that well. Well, I do think it's good to protect a girl or a boy's innocence. Um, and uh, it's a precious thing and it will, it, it will have it. It's, it's time limited. So, you know, we keep, we keep that while we can. And um, she'll see the dynamics of the difference, uh, the way girls and boys are treated. If you talk about it that way and don't focus on the, on the on, on genitals, you know, it's not, it's, that's not what it's about. It's yeah. about power dynamics. Mm-hmm. Sexual abuse is always the abuse of power. Mm. And that is why the church has such trouble with it because we're so steeped in the notion that it makes sense for men to have power and women to submit that to see this clearly means to unmask something so kind of um, basic and that feels just so natural or normal for a lot of people because they've grown up with it mm-hmm. that um, it's tough. The church, much like the coronavirus, has been rudely awakened as of, I mean, I, honestly, it was before 2017. You had many, many people. <laughs> you okay? I think I hear my cat scratching. <laughs> That's fine. You talked about the transcripts earlier. So I just did the one with Pete Inns over the weekend. Uh, because my daughter was home actually with strep throat and while she was sleeping, I needed something to do. So I tried in there, there was both his cat and his dog and I didn't edit them out probably cause it was too hard. And I literally put in parentheses, insert cat angrily meowing here. <laughs> um, I don't know that anybody will ever see it or say anything, but he is so snarky. I don't know how much you know about Pete ends. He's so very snarky that it felt appropriate for the uh, transcript to also have just a little bit of snark. Um, but no, so going back, the Me Too movement seems to have been something that was bubbling for a long time because I grew up with purity culture and I can vehemently remember the sermons that would come from my youth pastor growing up in youth group and that type of stuff and the differences between the way I was treated and the way that... And then I went to Liberty and it was exacerbated there uh, with the dress code standards and the double standards there. So it's not anything new. I'm curious, how did we get there? So what was, do you feel like was that tipping point a few years ago where people like enough is enough? Yeah. Well, the movement, you can actually trace it back to Toronto Burke. Um, um, and I, and I say that, I talk about that in the um, introduction, Mm -hmm. but it really, it really gained steam. Um, 
after the Harvey Weinstein thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was when it just uh, really, yeah, 2006 is when Toronto Burke created the hashtag. So to say that there was a whole like a, like this 10-year kind of incubation process in which women started to identify themselves to other women as someone who had also experienced abuse, me too. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if you remember in um, 2017, the fall, it was October when the Harvey Weinstein story broke. And it was such big news. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was actually not even just the United States. I mean, it, it was like a global thing because of his position as a film producer and um, the kind of impact he had. And um, so I think that there was just kind of a, the moment was right for that thing to just kind of break open. And that weekend when the, the hashtag just took off and then there were all these people who were so surprised that so many women that they knew were tweeting that same hashtag or putting it on social media somewhere on Facebook or on Instagram or wherever they, you know, were active and some people telling their stories, some people just identifying themselves, like kind of like just raising their hand in a way and saying, yeah, me too. Mm. And I think that there was just sheer volume, um, just where the voices become so loud, there's that you can't ignore it anymore. I've wanted to ask you this question since I learned that you were a pastor. So the church, I don't think has wanted to talk about this because and you have so many stories in this book. And then I've read bits and pieces of your prior book that I don't think the church likes to tend to sweep thing under the rub. I guess those aren't even words. The church tends to sweep things under the rug. There we go. Uh, when it comes to cases of this, but also other things, you know, uh, uh, alcoholism and and all other kinds of vices that comes from leadership in the church. So I'm curious if you could, for those listening, kind of give in your experience some of the ways that in the past the church, when things have been brought to their attention as a whole, just tends to move things to the side or try to dismiss an idea. Well, I just call it DIM thinking. That's a handy acronym, denying, ignoring, and minimizing. Hmm. And there's this uh, sense that that's something that's unseemly to talk about. And it maybe either wasn't as bad or just as the person is suggesting, or let's just, let's just look at all, um, look at the ways that Jesus redeemed it and, um, and, and move on. Mm -hmm. Um, If you read, you know, pieces of my, my, uh, was actually my second book ruined the memoir Mm. about, um, when I was uh, raped at gunpoint, I was told to move on from that, you know, within probably 24 hours of it happening. Mm. Um, I hadn't even begun to assimilate it into my understanding of who I was. And so there's this sense of, um, of just, of, of just distaste, you know, like, like I'm going to turn my head because I just can't look at that. Yeah. And you know, that it does puzzle me because, you know, isn't one of the reasons we have faith is that we have an understanding that, um, that there's sin and that evil is real and that evil exists. And yet when we kind of come face to face with something that's evil, there's this inability to just look it in the eye and say, wow, that really, that you have experienced evil. You have come face to face with something evil. Yeah. Um, and this is what, what God has to say about that. 
as a pastor, uh, speaking so vocally about this now, uh, writing on it, um, I, I won't say becoming more of a, of a focal point or a figure uh, in the movement, but definitely I think that's applicable. Um, have you received pushback from peers like, hey, Ruth, stop it. Like you're making this uncomfortable. People are coming into my office. This is not acceptable. You're going to need to settle down back there. Or have you had any of that happen at all? I haven't heard that from other clergy. I've heard it from people in churches hmm. who don't like sermons about that are um, <laughs> on this topic. <laughs> Somehow they just are upset when you preach about sexual assault. Uh, <laughs> Those are not texts that they've heard preached about before. Right. Um, yeah. Well, there's a lot of texts. I don't think people have been there's, a, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So earlier you said something and, and it kind of was a trigger for me. So you said, I grew up, I was a good girl. And when I hear that, what I hear is a form of grooming, or maybe I'm taking that too far, but can you break apart that concept of, I was a good girl? Um, and then kind of the implications of that. Right. I mean, to be a good girl is to be modest and to be, um, kind and to be smiling and to not take up too much space hmm. to not ask too many questions to not impose on anyone to uh, not be vain um and um i always thought i could go off on what what that means for women but to be about vanity uh but this sense of um, um a good girl is sexually pure hmm. and this is a very important part of her persona. And, you know, you mentioned having grown up in purity culture. So you know what I'm talking about there. Um, uh, and, and that is put on girls to an extent that it's not uh, put on boys, uh, sexual purity. Yeah. I can remember going to youth uh, retreats and we'd, we'd pass around flowers that by the time it was done of a hundred hands, it's not a flower. It's barely a stem. Um, you know, and then that uses a metaphor, but it was always directed at um, at at, a, at whatever the young ladies were that happened to be there. It was never my fault, ever. It's always your fault, Ruth. You knew better. I can't control myself, which in hindsight makes me really mad because it trained me that I'm just an animal, that I don't have to have any consequences for my actions. And then if it was my daughter, it's training her that she somehow bears a responsibility for her and I and almost like she becomes a scapegoat for all of my bad decisions, all of them. Right, that women bear responsibility for what men do to them. And that's what sexual shame is. And that's why, that's why I titled my book, Ruined. I mean, so why could something that someone else did to me ruin me? And yet there was no doubt in my mind that that's what had happened. And that's what started me on this, yeah. on this uh, quest turned out to be a lifelong quest about looking at how, how, uh, what Jesus thinks of women, what the church thinks of women and why those two things are so different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about those two a bit? You know, I love to talk about what Jesus says about women. Let's do and, that. Uh, we lose how extremely unusual he was in his relationships to women. Um, because to us, it's not that unusual for a man to talk to a woman he doesn't know. Uh, it was in that day, and that, and Jesus did it, and he did it frequently. And the people around him reacted in ways that told us that what he was saying was unusual, or the mm -hmm. very fact that he was saying it 
you know, you think of the Samaritan woman at the well. You think of the Syrophoenician woman who said to him about uh, even who pushed back and said, even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the mm. table, that, that passage. You think of all the times that he healed women and, and reached out and touched them. He treated women like they were uh, of the same value and worth as men. Mm-hmm. And that was astounding. I mean, it's still astounding sometimes for think of all the ways in, in which in the past the news, the news cycle for the past 48 hours, you look through it with the sign, you'll see all the ways in which women were not treated equally to men. And so um, the fact that 2000 years ago, Jesus in, in Palestine um, was doing that, uh, you know, in a land that was still, what was, what was normative was with the Levitical purity laws, you know, that was astounding. Mm-hmm. And, and I say in the book, I don't want to recast Jesus in my own image as a modern day feminist. Um, but I kind of do. I mean, <laughs> because he, um, I think if we take him on his own merits in his own culture, he, he his, his way of interacting with women is so redemptive. Hmm. It is what told me that I was not actually ruined. What convinced me that I was not actually ruined was walking into a church and hearing a clergy who happened to be a female clergy, happened to be the first female clergy I ever heard preach, preaching on no other text than Jesus healing the woman with a flow of blood. Mm. Which is such a beautiful text because, I mean, there's there's that tainted blood that, that makes a woman impure. You know, that all the Levitical laws are based on this... this uh, being unclean, yeah. Being unclean. Be clean again. Yeah, if I remember right, and I think it was, so uh, she's not our one minister now, but one of our ministers at our church, um, she's since moved on, because uh, if memory serves, here in the next few days, she's having twins, because um, she's 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 something. I, nope, don't sign me up for that, any part of that. Um, but if I remember right, and I think it, yeah, yeah, her and her husband, yeah, they're fantastic. Anyway, um, I remember she preached a sermon, I think it was her, uh, and Lacey, if I'm wrong, email me and correct me. Um, every time... That off, or often every time Jesus talks about you know, a woman comes and the disciples are there and they do something and everyone's like, oh my God, you can't, what are you doing? Uh, oftentimes Jesus would then correct them and be like, y'all are with me all the time. I keep telling you and keep telling you and keep telling you and you don't get it, but she gets it. You see what she did? She's actually doing something and being, she understands. None of you even get what's happening right now. Yeah. And you were with me all flipping day and yesterday why do you still miss this? It's just a beautiful sermon about just, you know, just the, it, it's just, I remember walking away going, well, that's new. I've never, I'm glad you heard that sermon. I'm so glad. Yeah. And I can't remember all the stories in it. Um, but yeah. Well, and you know, like when Jesus came out of the tomb and the first word on his lip, mm-hmm. I mean, do you know in John what in the gospel of John, 
the first word that the risen Lord says is woman. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and then you think that the, the woman he addressed couldn't even testify to the fact that she'd seen him and be believed, but yet Jesus chose to appear to her. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I, I don't think there's any, any doubt that Jesus attitude towards women was highly unusual in his day. And it was it was redemptive. It, it it was it was completely loving, and um, women had the same value as men, the same worth. So again, I had alluded to earlier that I let um, I had asked some people for some of their questions, and a, a listener had said he was curious: Why do you feel like the church often feels the need to investigate internally first before they would ever even get authorities involved? especially with sexual misuse or misconduct in the church, um, that they'll take their sweet little time, investigate for a year, send you a platitude letter, um, which you actually reference in your book as well. I think it's chapter four. Um, but why do you, I'm curious your thoughts on why they would just keep it all internal and never even possibly involve the proper authorities. Well, I think that what churches would say um, they're doing, but what they're really doing would be two different things. They would say what they're doing is they're protecting the church's reputation Mm. and they're um, dealing with it in-house because they're going to make sure um, that they're not too quick to have the church be seen, you know, in the limelight or in the spotlight of the news media as having an allegation surface. Mm -hmm. So they're going to protect the church from that. Right. Um, But um, what they're actually doing is enabling abusers to uh, continue without having to face the consequences of their actions. Mm-hmm. And it's probably, I think that what you're bringing up is the biggest problem right now in uh, how churches are handling these things is in uh, in-house investigations that go nowhere. And, um, you know, since sexual abuse is always the abuse of power, um, usually the people who are doing the abuse are people in power. And people in power don't like to give up their power. And the, and the other dynamic, though, that churches sometimes don't pay enough attention to is the fact that they love their people in power. I mean, the, the, the preacher that maybe has been geared to them now to be accused of something they're in no hurry to see that person fall off the pedestal. It's painful. And so they are going, so what they're saying, they might say that they're protecting the church's reputation, but they're really protecting themselves from uncovering something that's really painful. Mm. They're, um, they're protecting themselves from having the outside world see that maybe the church is not so pure and so um, crystalline. And uh, that's, it's, just as full of misconduct as other places are. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I want to rephrase what I'm hearing you say is as a person going to my church, if it came up in my church tomorrow, uh, you're, you're saying the overall congregation is more, is more willing to either not listen or just be complacent because it's really comfortable to sit in the third row pew. This is where I sit. This is my spot and I don't need you to rock the boat. I'd rather just come in for an hour or two a week and get ministered to, but I don't really want to actually live with you and be in a relationship with you because if I did that, I'd have to possibly interact with people and things that are uncomfortable. Right. I'd have to look straight on at that ugly thing. Yeah. Um, that's, that's painful. 
that I want you to move on from just so I don't have to look at it. Um, so as a minister, what does that say about our churches as a whole of, of many denominations? Uh, and I have to think that this isn't just a thing in Christian churches. It has to be a thing in multiple. Maybe it's not. Maybe you, 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 maybe you know better than I do um, that other, other faiths, I assume, have similar issue or no? I'm not an authority on uh-huh. that. I can't really speak to uh, misconduct in other places, although we certainly see it in all walks of life. I think it's easy to understand how the church got to where we're at now. But how is a good way forward as as someone in the clergy where you're like, all right, this we ha- this has to change? And I referenced it earlier with my daughter. Like, I don't want the the universe that she lives in 40 years from now to look anything like this one um, in any way. Well, maybe in some shapes and forms, but not in this instance. So, what are some instances maybe that you've seen as you've toured the you know you you've preached and you've you've you've, you've talked with people and you're you know speaking on it that you've seen churches institute things that, that work well of here's what we're going to change. Here's why it's going to work. Here's how it's going to be painful. Everybody's going to get upset and that's healthy because that's how we deal with trauma communally as a church. What are some ways that you've seen churches doing it well? And then maybe some things that are, if anything that you would change. Right. Well, so dealing with sexual abuse is basically falls into two camps. One is prevention and one is response. And I see that we're making progress, especially in the issue of prevention. And, um, you know, it's become really normative to have child protection policies of some kind or safe church protection policies where people are trained in terms of not being alone with a child or of having, you know, windows in the doors or having the door open. And, uh, you know, it's just like these really basic things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is an awareness that, that we have to protect vulnerable people. So I think that's the, and, and I see those happening, um, like if almost any major denomination, you go on their website, you can see resources to help churches. You know, churches don't have to reinvent the wheel to um, implement these kinds of things. So that's like the first crack of the door opening to say, well, at least there's this awareness that we have to protect vulnerable people and that there could be a predator here in our in our midst. There could be a wolf among the sheep here. And that's that's a huge deal for some churches. And um, and, and now more and more churches are doing then a boundary training, which is where you take it, I think, a step farther and you and you look at how um, how adults interact with teenagers, how adults interact with other adults. What are, what are the power differentials and how, how do we safeguard, um, how do we, how do we safeguard those relationships? So those are healthy. And so that people are safe, um, in this, they bring, I mean, you think of what you bring to a church, you bring your spiritual self, right? Mm -hmm. So, so wounding in a, in a church context is not just wounding of the physical body but of the um, also of the spiritual body. And this is why it's so especially damaging. Um, s- sexual abuse in churches is also spiritual abuse. Um, and that's, that's even before people layer on top of it, the fact that many people who are engaged in this kind of predatory behavior actually use scripture and twist it as mm. a way to manipulate their people. So this very, very damning and very, very damaging. Um, so, so the very first way to start to arm yourself against that is to, uh, is to talk about power 
And you talk about who has it and who doesn't and how do we how do we maintain boundaries? And that's that's all in the issue of, of prevention and which is where we're doing a little better. Um, in terms of response, there's still a huge resistance to investigating people and um, taking them out of their ministry positions when when they need to be removed. The other question I had on that is, so someone like myself where I, so just a little bit more about me than you probably want to know, I genuinely struggle with emotions. I'm a logic-based person. It's probably why I like banking. Um, I've been called lack of, like, like that I lack empathy, which I don't think is actually true. I just don't know how to really often express emotions. I didn't cry when my wife walked down the aisle. I didn't cry when my kids were born. And I know a lot of people hear that like, oh my gosh, you're heartless. And that, it doesn't take away anything from those moments. They're fantastic. But you know what I mean? Like, so for me, when I want to try to have this conversation with someone or use a voice where I'm like, hey, I'd like to encourage you in this, I find that I often have no idea how to start that conversation. So for someone like myself listening, where they're like, all right, I'm hearing all this, because uh, there'll be you know tens of thousands of people that'll listen, and they'll be like, yeah, I probably should say something or be a safe place for someone to come to or scream with a microphone like, hey, I know this is happening and this is not acceptable anymore. This has got, t- today's the last day that it's ever going to happen. How would you advise someone like myself to go, yeah, here's how you begin that conversation? Well, maybe a person such as yourself, is, it's, it's, you know, make no apology for the fact that you operate out of your intellect more than out of your emotions, because we need that as well. Um, in the church, um, we often want to um, kind of say they're there and pat somebody and, and think that that's walking with them and maybe offer a prayer or something and say, mm-hmm. well, well, we'll keep you in our prayers. But that's, um, and that's all well and good. But the other piece that needs to be done is the justice piece. And that is saying, um, can I walk with you as you bring charges against the person who abused you? Mm. Do you need help in doing that? Can, have you made a police report? Can I help you make a police report? Can I go with you to um, have a, uh, a rape kit done? Um, I mean, these are things where not being overly emotional, you can see would actually be helpful if you were the person right there in the moment. And if you're the person hearing about it later, there's still that kind of lens you can bring to it to say, um, what, what, what is, what has to happen here for justice to, to occur? I feel like justice is a word, especially recently with all of the protests that are happening in our country that has been taken and oftentimes twisted for political means. So when you say justice, specifically as it relates to the Me Too movement, or just really justice overall as it relates to our faith, what are you saying? I mean, I'm using it actually in its political sense where I completely believe that uh, the charges should be brought either Mm -hmm. in a civil court or a church court, and that, that sexual assault is not only a sin, but it's also a crime. And we shouldn't be hesitant to uh, a victim. A victim should not hesitate uh, to bring charges against her abuser. And the thing is that there uh, is very difficult to do that. And this is why the role of advocacy is so important. And this is why I was so excited about the church being involved in Me Too, because I saw it as a way for us as 
church people to advocate for victims. Mm. And um, I see us as being very hesitant to do that because of all these various reasons that we've been discussing. And I see that our sense of justice is often this kind of nebulous, um, like we'll get justice, you know, when the kingdom comes mm. and that yeah. that's, that's, that's what we should wait for. But I, I don't see that that's, um, that's appropriate. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I, I fully agree. There's a book that I read a few years ago about prayer, which talks about not praying in a petitionary way. Not that you can't play that way, but there are better ways to pray in which you partner with God to do something as opposed to, I prayed as I did what I was supposed to do. I prayed, so now it's dinner time. Moving on, because I, I did my thing. The rest is on God, which I think is so flippant of, of, of our faith. So um, I alluded to it a um, a minute ago. Um, it's the question I've been asking everyone. And and I also want to say something else. So uh, for those listening, uh, I, I've already said a few minutes ago that I struggle with emotions. So I actually have your other book that you referenced a minute ago. I had to stop reading it. That's why I've only read part, parts of it because I just, I was like, I'm, I'm done. I can't read this. Like I don't want to, re- if that makes any sense. I just, i not comfortable. And the same thing with all of the stories laced throughout this book, which is why I haven't intentionally skirted around the topics in the best way that I can, because I really struggle with it. Um, but for those listening, please pick up Ruth's book, because it is one of the best books I've read all year, but also one of the hardest books for me to talk about, because oftentimes people will ask me, what are you reading? And I will talk all about, you know, this one on the Talmud, this one on the Torah, this one on uh, incarceration, or this one on Ruth, or this one on whatever. And I've really struggled to adequately explain your book. Um, so for those listening, please please listen to me and buy the darn thing. Um, however, the question that I've been asking everyone uh, before, the, before we close is when you say the word God, Ruth, or the divine, or whatever word you want to try to wrap around that, what are you actually trying to say to someone? So say, say, you know, say a 20-year-old walked up to you at college and they're like, hey, what do you mean? What would you try to say to that? What is God? They said to me, what is God? What is the divine? Yeah. I would say that it is the creative and loving force that undergirds everything that is and ever will be. Mm, I like it a lot. Ruth, where uh, can people get the book, interact with this, but more importantly, interact um, with the movement to continue to, and you talked about it earlier, we're always limping behind as a church in our culture. Culture seems to drag us along about, you can't treat people this way. And then the church begrudgingly goes, as opposed to maybe if we listen to the spirit, we would instead be pulling the world with us. Like, yeah, guys, we can't do this. We should be better. Where would, um, where should people go to kind of interact with what you're doing, the book, and then those type of topics there? Well, I love it when I hear about people in churches reading this book in small groups, mm. you know, in their, in an adult class or their leadership board or something to kind of be prepared uh, for whatever might come in terms of um, allegations of abuse. And I've heard from people, can you believe there's 10 chapters. I just spoke with a church. They spent 10 weeks on the book. Mm. Um, and they found so much to, dis- to discuss just chapter by chapter because each chapter has a Bible story that I deal with really mm-hmm. in depth. Um, I just like to mention that because sometimes people don't realize how much scriptural material there is in this book. There's a lot. The one I wrestled with the most is the parable of the widow. Um, I kept coming oh, yeah. back to that one over and over and over again. At first, I was like, where are you going with this? And then at the end, I was like, all right, start over. 
and then come back and start over. I, it, it took a couple of times. Um, still, actually, I, I read it a little bit earlier today as well. Well, you know, you were mentioning about how you feel like we don't want to get off the hook by saying, oh, well, we prayed about it. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting because Luke, I mean, that's 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 actually, you know, the, the prelude to that parable says, and then Jesus told told a prayer, uh, told a parable that they should pray always. And I don't think actually that that's what the parable is about, but it's like even Luke, <laughs> Luke wrote it down, was trying to get away from what Jesus was really saying because it was untenable. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a very challenging yeah. little, little three sentences. Mm-hmm. I love that. I mm-hmm. love that parable. Um, I, yeah. I actually commissioned a piece of artwork about that parable. Really? And yeah, and if you want one, you can just you can just ask me from I I um and you can order it from Benjamin Wildflowers website. Yeah, yeah, that's on my website. Uh, you can read about that. So where people can find me is I have my website is ruthevererart.com, and I'm on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram. Hmm. And so you can find me on those places and um, you can contact me through my website very easily. I, I hear from people through there a lot or send me a message somehow. And, um, and because of the pandemic shutting down all my speaking engagements, I, um, <laughs> I'm doing more um, webinars and so on like this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I can help set you up with books if that's an issue. So yeah, good. I'm happy to sign them for you. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I, um, I listened to a different guy on a different podcast a few days ago. He's like, yeah, I just lost like three months of income and a weekend. And I was like, well, okay, what do, what do I do and now? So many, you know, it's tri- trivial compared to what some people are um, yeah. experiencing, but I do have, put it this way, a couple hundred books I didn't expect to have on hand. So. <laughs> well, that works. Yeah. <laughs> Call me by your The way that we've handled sexuality in the church, sexuality about homosexuality and gender and gender roles and patriarchy, sexual purity, all of it is just unacceptable. Sweeping things under the rug is unacceptable. Telling people that it's someone else's fault is unacceptable. Scapegoating other people as if the bad choices that were inflicted upon them was somehow their fault and they did it wrong. That's just bad theology and that's not God. And I would encourage you, pick up Ruth's book. It is laced with stories. Stories, honestly, that um, I still struggle with. But I sent the book actually out to uh, the patron supporters that are in the book section there. And I got a comment from one of them saying, it looks like I have some light reading. I want to challenge everybody listening. Grab a copy of Ruth's book. I think it's on sale. Uh, And as she mentioned, just shoot her an email. I'm sure she would figure out a way to get you one. It needs to be talked about. And it needs to constantly be talked about, like so many other things. And I know that it's uncomfortable and it's hard and that's okay because it matters. This show isn't possible without the support of patrons. And so I wanted to welcome the newest member of the patron community, Sean. Thank you so much to you and to the countless others like you that make this show an actual possibility. Without you, it cannot function and this show cannot be a thing. And so if you get anything out of this free podcast, consider sharing it with friends and family. Follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. 
if you are able in the environment that we're in, throw a couple bucks a month towards the show. Uh, together, each and every single one of you combined really makes the show sustainable. I'm aware of how important money is. And I thank you for trusting me with a little bit of it. So thank you very much again to Ruth for coming on the show and to Heath McNeese for your music mixed into this show. I can't wait to talk to you again. Be blessed, everybody, and be safe. Come a little closer, love. Time to say it, you'll be leaving soon and I'll be staying What's the point in always hesitating? Tell me, baby, what are we afraid of? Apologize to him, I don't know him I ain't bothered if I disappoint him Even if I could, I won't control it This a closed door that no one opens